Let's um, start out today by turning to the book of Ezekiel. I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14 and verse 21. Here, God describes the nature of four sore judgments which He is wont to use, particularly as regards the people Israel and their sin. In Ezekiel 14.21 it reads, For thus saith the Lord God, How much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the noisome beast, and the pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. I don't know what your picture of God is. You know, the world seems to have a problem reconciling a benevolent God with death, suffering, and destruction in this earth. I'm not even sure the term benevolent is a correct term to apply to God. God is a righteous God. God is benevolent in that He governs and preserves His creation, but He is a righteous God and He is a jealous God. The Bible says He will not share His glory with another. A lot of people can't stomach that. God is a jealous God. He will not share His glory. He's a holy and righteous God. Thereby, God judges nations. God intervenes in the affairs of men not only to draw men to Himself, but also to pour out His judgment upon the wicked and the rebellious. Particularly those nations that bring reproach on God, that deny God, or that once knew Him and then turned their back upon Him. In this context, God is referring to His four sore judgments. In other words, four judgments that He is wont to use to bring judgment against a nation. The sword, hunger or famine, death, and the the noisome beast. Okay, Four sore judgments. And so, um, we often wonder, well, how can a benevolent God allow these things to happen? Well, maybe benevolent's not the right term to use. Maybe it's righteous God. And a righteous God does that which is right. Right and wrong is not defined by what we feel is right. It's not defined by what we think seems good to us or feels good. Right and wrong is defined by the one who created right and wrong. The one who created all things. The one who created the universe, the cosmos, the earth, created the heart of man. That's who defines right and wrong. And God sees the sword, the famine, the noisome beast, and the pestilence as a means of bringing judgment against wicked nations. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 6, keeping those four judgments in mind. Is there anything necessarily supernatural or paranormal about the sword, famine, pestilence, and noisome beast? Is there anything necessarily supernatural or paranormal about those things? No, those are things that happen. If there's war, there's expectedly death. If there's famine, there's expectedly death and suffering. If there's pestilence, whether it be a plague or some outbreak of sickness or disease, it brings suffering and death. 
Wild animals bring death to human beings. They always have. So these are natural phenomena that occur and have occurred throughout the history of the world that bring suffering. God uses these things within the bounds of His created order and the natural laws that He's established. He uses them and brings them with intensity for the purpose of judgment. So they have somewhat of a natural um, element. There's nothing necessarily miraculous unless we're talking about the intensity thereof. Okay, It's not miraculous that a hungry lion or a hungry bear would attack a man or if a mother protecting her cubs would attack and kill a man that comes in a little bit too close. There's nothing miraculous about that. That's what happens. What's miraculous, however, is when such events are intensified to go beyond normal expectation. If all of a sudden we started seeing umpteen numbers of bears hungry bears running around our neighborhood and getting into our trash and attacking little children as they stand at the bus stop, that is a natural phenomenon, but the intensity is miraculous. And so what God often does when He brings judgment through natural phenomena is he, the, the miracle is in the intensity of it and the concentration of it. Does that make sense? And so I think when God sends His judgments... They're not just naturally explained away because if they do involve natural phenomena, the intensity is such that it cannot be explained apart from the hand of God. Jesus talked about in the last days there being an increase in wars and rumors of wars, an increase in, in, in natural disaster, what we would call natural disasters. That increase borders on the miraculous and proves to be the hand of God. And so when God refers to His four sword judgments here in Ezekiel, they're, mirac- they're natural in the sense of, of what they involve, but they're miraculous in the sense that God sends them with intensity and He sends them for a specific purpose, to bring judgment and to wake up those who have turned their back upon Him. And in a sense, I think this is what we see in Revelation chapter 6. The first five seals involve things that naturally occur all the time around the world. But in the end of days, in Daniel's 70th week, the intensity is such that it's more than what we would expect on any normal day. And therefore, these judgments from God ought to wake people up. Unfortunately, we'll see at the end of the chapter, they do not. So we've talked about the first seal, the coming of Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 13, this Antichrist is referred to as a beast out of the sea. So in a sense, the first seal is one of God's four sword judgments. Not just against Israel, but upon the whole earth. Because the four sword judgments involve noisome beast. And in a sense, the Antichrist we know is the ultimate beast. The beast out of the sea. The second seal is the red horse. War. War is one of God's Four sword judgments mentioned there in Ezekiel, the sword. The third beast is or the third seal is famine, the black horse, economic collapse, social unrest, the things that accompany mass inflation in world economy. That's the famine, one of God's four sword judgments. And then finally, the, the fourth horse is death, the green, the pale green horse, the pale horse. 
His rider is death, the, one, the only one who's actually named. And hell, hell follows in His train. That's what we discussed the last time I was here is that fourth horse. And we see that hell opens wide her mouth to receive the dead during this time. The pestilence, okay? Death. This is one of God's four sword judgments. Not death in the ex- to the extent of expected death. When there's war, when there's famine, when there's hunger, when there's all of these things, we expect death. But I believe the death that comes riding when hell enlarges her mouth at the opening of the fourth seal is more than just death. It's unexpected death. It's tragedy. An increase in an intensity in tragedy, whether, whether it be um, terrorist attacks or automobile wrecks, train wrecks, accidents. I think that's the nature of the fourth seal. So what we have here with the first four seals is the four sword judgments of God that He talks about sending to Jerusalem in Ezekiel. Here these four sword judgments are coming upon the earth. And so we see a consistency in the way in which God deals with man. God doesn't act erratically. God doesn't just make rash decisions. God doesn't just get angry and just not even think about what He's doing and rain down fire and brimstone for no reason. When God acts, He acts consistently. When He deals with nations, He deals with them consistently. And so when God gives warnings to Israel, when we see God acting in Israel's history, we ought to take note as a nation because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The fact that Israel's still around is proof of God's consistent action, that He does not change. It says in, I believe it's in the book of um, Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Israel, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Because God made a promise to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham concerning the people of Israel. And because God doesn't change, despite Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament, despite their legalism and rejection of Jesus and the Messiah, God's promise still stands. And He won't just in anger wipe them from the earth. He will judge them, He will punish them, and the wicked of Israel will perish. But He reserves unto Himself a remnant because He does not change. And we see the same thing here concerning the church in America or around the world. Despite the wickedness of the times, despite what we see as judgment coming, some of which is already here, God reserves unto Himself a remnant. So I just find it interesting that Revelation is consistent. It matches God's revelation elsewhere in the Bible. Not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament when dealing with God's judgment. So, the Bible is a wonderful progressive revelation that always agrees with itself. It doesn't contradict itself. There are no contradictions in the Scripture. People have tried to accuse the Scriptures of contradicting itself, and they never can do it without ripping the Scripture out of its clear context. They can't, do it, they can't make these contradictions appear without cherry-picking Scriptures. You don't cherry-pick a verse out of a chapter and ignore what's written before it, after it, and in the the remainder of that particular book. And when you take Scripture in its context, it amazingly agrees with itself. And a lot of what we see in Israel's history is a microcosm of what's going to take place with the whole world in terms of God's judgment. So I see 
The first four seals is being nothing more than God's four sword judgments. Now look at the end of verse 8. We talked about the first part of verse 8. And look, I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him, and power... Verse, the second half, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Okay? Usually this entire verse is interpreted to refer to the fourth horse. I believe, however, that when you look at what's said here in the last half of the verse, part B, or the second half of verse 8, is not referring specifically or only to the fourth horse. I think it's a summary statement. So we've been told about the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. And then it says, power was given unto them. Well, who is them? The immediate antecedent is death and hell. Death on the pale horse, hell following behind. However, it says that power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword. That's the red horse. With hunger, that's the black horse. With death, or tragic death, unexpected death, that's the pale horse. And with the beast of the earth. I believe that's a, refer a subtle reference to the white horse. Because if you go later in the book, as I said, Revelation 13, the beast out of the sea, that is the Antichrist. You get into Revelation 14, you have the beast out of the earth which is the false prophet who leads the people of the earth. I'm sorry, that's all in Revelation 13. You have the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. The false prophet corresponds with the third, it's the third person of the satanic trinity. He comes and causes the world to worship the beast. These are beasts. You know, the antichrist, the ultimate beast, the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. And so in a sense, this summary statement is a reference to the judgments laid out with the coming of all four horses. And so when it says that power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth, that is referring to the destruction laid out by all four horses, not just the pale horse or the fourth horse. Sword or war famine, pestilence, unexpected death and tragedy, beast of the earth, this will affect a fourth of the world during this first part of the tribulation. Now I find this reference to the beast of the earth interesting. Turn to Leviticus chapter 26 verse 22. God warns the people of Israel if they turn from Him and forget His law in the land into which He is sending them. And He warns them that you do these things, these judgments will follow. Okay? The difference between God and the gods of men is God brings judgment, but He never does without warning. You know, Bishnu will tell you the gods of Hinduism that he grew up believing just act erratically and rashly and they just get angry for no reason and destroy sinners. God never sends judgment without warning. In fact, He says through Amos the prophet, shall I the Lord do anything without first revealing myself to the prophets? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. God's grace is that He warns the wicked before He punishes them. The gods of men don't do that. That's not Allah's 
caricature in the book or in the Quran. But God warns. And so Israel has had no excuse. They couldn't blame God for what followed in their history. God warned them. And one of the things He said that He would do, I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, and destroy your cattle, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. So God uses wild beasts to bring judgment. And it says He would do that to Israel if they turned their back on Him. You can read through the Old Testament. God talks about sending wild lions amongst the people. God talked about sending the hornet ahead of Joshua and the Israelites into Canaan to drive the people out of their cities. One of God's four sword judgments, the noisome beast. What is that a reference to? I find it interesting that, or I do believe that we will see an increase in this type of activity as the coming of Christ draws nigh. I was reading something uh, not long ago, May 18th, uh, May 18th of this year, there was a bear attack on a military base um, near Anchorage, Alaska. It was a very strange thing. A bear came on a military base and attacked someone, something they had never seen before. I think we'll see an increase of this type of thing. Okay, What does the noisome beast mean? What is that a reference to? Is that just natural animals? Or could there be a supernatural element in which the demonic is involved? If you talk to people like Bishnu or James who live in places where the devil manifests himself in a variety of ways, where demonism and witch doctors and animism and, and, and all of this devil worship is prevalent, they'll tell you that um, demonic attack, which serves to breed fear in the people, often involves wild animals or the likenesses of wild animals. It involves uh, death. It involves deception. Um, we here in America are so natural in our thinking that we don't comprehend that there is a supernatural world and that we can easily be given over to these things and we're foolish to think that mankind is at the top of the food chain. If you look at the night sky on a clear night and contemplate the number of stars, it's nothing but foolishness to think that man is the pinnacle uh, of all things and that man is capable of colonizing space, that man is capable of understanding the universe, that man is capable of destroying the earth or controlling the earth. It's madness. It's madness when man thinks he can conquer mountains that can throw down snow and ice in such an instant that an entire team of climbers is wiped out in the blink of an eye, like what happened on Mount Rainier recently. We ought to be hum humble when we consider these things. It says a quarter of the earth's population or a quarter of the earth will be affected. I'm not sure if this is a reference to a quarter of the earth's population or a quarter of the earth's inhabited area. You know, a quarter of the world or a quarter of civilization would involve Western Europe, North Africa, the Middle East. That seems to be what will be at the center of the revived Roman Empire or the Kingdom of the Beast. This could be a reference to the geography or the... Uh, portion of civilization, or it could be talking about 
a quarter of the earth's population. I think uh, the world's population surpassed 7 billion recently. There are two countries on the planet that have more than a billion people, India and China. There's about a 7 billion people that live here today. Anybody know when the population of the earth reached its first billion in human history? Anybody know? Ricky? I think it was the mid-1800s. So we didn't get a billion people on this earth until the mid-1800s. And so in less, in, a, in less than 200 years, we're at 7 billion. It kind of makes the long geologic ages of the evolutionists seem foolish. When you think of population growth, you could take the present day population and backwards extrap extrapolate and you could very easily be where we are today. Easily be where we are today backwards extrapolating to the biblical time of the flood. However, if mankind in his present state has been here on this planet for the last 300,000 years, there ought to be so many people that we couldn't stand up. And some would say, well, no, you know, there's been disasters and, and sicknesses and plagues. Well, of course there has. That's been recorded throughout human history, and it even is so today. And yet the population continues to grow. I believe our present population statistics, backwards extrapolating, confirm a young a young age of the earth and confirm the biblical chronology. All you have to do is the math. But a quarter of the world's present population would be about 1.75 billion people affected by these judgments. Now that's a lot. That's a lot of people that will be killed as a result of the coming of Antichrist, of the war that follows, of the massive inflation and famine, and of the unexpected death and tragedy. 1.75 billion. Now, to put this in perspective a little bit, single bloodiest day in American history was the Battle of Antietam in the Civil War, September 17, 1862. 22,717 casualties. That seems a lot, but it pales in comparison to 1.75 billion. Now, back when 9-11 happened, you know, usually when something happens immediately in the media, there's a bunch of hype and everybody's just trying to argue why this is the single greatest or this is the most important. And there were talks about how this was the bloodiest or the most deadly day in American history. 5,000 people killed. No, it wasn't. You know, people have actually suffered worse than we have in history. You know, the blacks weren't the only ones enslaved in history. Um... The homeless in America aren't the only people that have been poor. Okay, People have actually suffered and, and, and they've seen suffering in much greater degrees than we have. We here in America are shielded from those things. You know, Our suffering is what we see on a video game where we pick up a gun and can just pile up carnage left and right. So there's no appreciation for life whatsoever. That, that's why we murder untold millions of unborn children in this country. But there's a day coming when this super sensitive, sheltered culture is going to be confronted with death in a way they won't know what to do. And it will, any other point in American history that involves an incredible amount of death will pale in comparison to that. Gettysburg, 51,000 casualties over a two-day period. In fact, we're coming up. Um, Tuesday is the anniversary of, of the start of Gettysburg, July 1st through 3rd. 1863, and then on July 4th, I believe, Vicksburg fell. 
And so, some terrible things happened in 1863. The Battle of Chickamauga, over a two-day period, 34,000 casualties, 622,000 in the Civil War. And so, that's both sides, 622,000. If you look at the total number of U.S. deaths in military engagements beginning with the American Revolution all the way up until the present day war on terror. Now, I'm not sure if it includes the six soldiers that lost their lives going after that wicked traitor that we brought home, that Bergdahl. You know what happened to him during the Civil War? <laughs> They'd have lined him up in front of a firing squad and shot him. That's what they would have done. So I'm not sure if this figure includes those Americans who died pursuing this man who had forsook his country. He wasn't captured by the Taliban. He went over to the Taliban. It's funny how our government will do all of these things to bring home a man like that and put people's lives at risk, but God forbid they would even lift a finger to help an American citizen that might be sitting in a North Korean prison because of his Christian faith. God forbid they would lift a finger to help any Christian group anywhere that's being persecuted. It really is shameful. But anyway, I don't know if this number includes those six, but I, I looked it up and it says that there's been one, roughly 1.4 million American deaths in all of our history from the Revolutionary War up until now. 1.4 million. Did you know that that's less than 0.001% of the death being prophesied here in these seals? 1.4 million is less than 0.001% of 1.75 billion. That just puts things in perspective a little bit. What's coming is judgment. And the judgment is harsh. And the judgment sadly won't bring untold millions to repentance. It will cause men to harden and further blaspheme the God of heaven. So this brings us through the first four seals. I believe verse, the end of verse 8 is a summary statement that kind of wraps up what has taken place thus far. And now we start with verse 9. Let's look at the fifth seal for a few minutes. Verses 9 through 11. And when He, that is the Lamb, had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And so what is this fifth seal? Is it a horse that comes riding, bringing death to the wicked? No. It's martyrdom. It's the death of the righteous. And you might ask yourself, how is the death of the righteous, how is the martyrdom of the saints a seal of judgment upon the earth? That doesn't seem right. Why would an all-benevolent God allow His followers to be killed? Those are questions that you might have right here at the outset. But I think the answer is interesting. Let's go ahead and open up this seal. This is the fifth seal. The souls of the righteous under the altar crying out for God's vengeance. Okay? So if you guys want to pass that around, you can look at it. 
Here we have saints crying out to God for vengeance. And we have the martyrdom of the righteous. And that is listed here as a seal. A seal of judgment. It says here in verse 9 that God saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. Under the altar. What does that mean? Turn to Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7. This is talking about the sin offering at the brazen altar in the tabernacle. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation." So in other words, blood was to be put on the horns of the altar and poured underneath. And this was a sweet incense unto the Lord. So what we have here is tabernacle or temple imagery. These souls under the altar in heaven that John sees is a sweet incense unto the Lord. Well, what in the world does that mean? Look at Psalm 116 verse 15. I think this is the answer. This explains how these souls under the altar are a sweet incense to God. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. When the saints die, whether it be by natural processes, old age, or some sudden tragedy, as we weep and mourn their loss, we need not weep and mourn as those that have no hope. And it behooves us to remember that the death of Christ's followers, the death of any person born again is precious in the sight of the Lord. It's a sweet incense before the Lord. So we have these souls under the altar, an image from the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple, the altar in heaven, crying out to God, it's a sweet incense before God. What does it mean by souls? Some people look at this word soul and say, well, these are martyrs that don't have a resurrection body. So they must be martyrs that come out of the tribulation. These must be tribulation saints. People that are martyred because they follow Christ after the rapture of the church and therefore they're standing there under the altar in a disembodied state because they won't receive their resurrection body until the millennial kingdom. I, don't, I believe that's reading a little bit too much. That word soul can be used to refer not just to the soul of the man, but to the whole of a man. Okay, We often talk about precious souls that are perishing. We're not just talking about the inside of a man. We're talking about his whole being. Okay, So I don't necessarily believe that this word soul here is referring to a a disembodied martyr who's not a part of the church. And I think we can look at what these souls are saying and understand that these martyrs are not just limited to the tribulation. It says in verse 10, They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? 
Are these tribulation saints? Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 talks about tribulation saints. Those that John sees around the throne of all tribes, tongues, and nations. It says, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that's later. It's kind of strange to me that these would be referring to tribulation saints and then we're told later in chapter 7 that these have washed their robes and they're in a place rejoicing. So I don't think this is limited to tribulation saints. Here, white robes, it says in verse 11, are given unto them. Just like in Revelation 19, it says the white raiment is the righteousness of the saints. But those in chapter 7 that are martyred during the tribulation wash their robes. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Their robes are washed white in verse 14 of chapter 7. Here, these saints are given robes. But I want to look more specifically on what is said. How long, O Lord, holy and true? The title that is used here of God, Lord, is not the typical word for Lord in the New Testament from the Greek kurios. It's another word translated Lord. It's the word despotes. Okay, I think from that we get our English word despot. When we think of despot, we think of a judge or a ruler that rules with an iron hand. We can almost use that word as, as referring to a tyrant. So I think our English word focuses more on the negative sense of the term. That's not the case with the Greek word. That Greek word, despotes, is used of God several other places in the New Testament. The common word for Lord is kurios, which means master. But this word despotes used here is also used in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Matthew, look up Luke 2.29. Bob, if you'll look up Acts 4.24... Daniel, Jude, verse 4. And Ronnie, 2 Peter 2, 1. These are some other instances where this word Lord from the Greek despotes is used. And I think it sheds light on what is being emphasized here in terms of God's Lordship. Luke 2, 29. Okay, so here we have Simeon in the temple. What was Simeon, Simeon waiting for? He was waiting for a chance to see the Messiah that had been prophesied long ago. And he told the Lord, if you'll just let me see Him, then I can die in peace. And so we have Simeon who is thinking about all of history and God's promises down through the ages, through the prophets and through Abraham and, and, and David and all, all down through the Old Testament wanting to see the fulfillment of what was promised beginning in the Garden of Eden all the way until his day. Undoubtedly, he knew that the, D Daniel's 69th week uh, was coming to an end and that the time was at hand. And so, Simeon addresses God here in the context of the entire corridor of history, looking for the fulfillment of Messiah. Acts 4.24 Okay, here we have persecuted Christians 
that have been warned against preaching in Jerusalem, they respond to that persecution not by asking God to deliver them from it, but asking God to give them boldness in the face of this persecution. These Christians are addressing God, Lord, despotes, Thou art God which made heaven, earth, sea, and all that in them is. So they are telescoping all the way back to the beginning of history. And then in their prayer, they start talking about what David talked about in the Psalms. They talk about the kings of the earth and the rulers all down through history gathered against the Lord and against His Christ. And then what happened to Jesus at the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel and how that all affects them right there in that moment. So they're addressing God in a prayer the context of which is all of human history, beginning with creation. And so that word despotes is used of God. Jude verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have this word used of God, used of Christ, despotes, Lord Jesus Christ, in the context of false teachers. False teachers that come in, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's the church in America today. Lasciviousness is unrestrained lust. So we take the grace of God and we turn it into lust to justify all of our wicked ways. You know, the church today that is changing its opinion on homosexuality and homosexual marriage does not reflect the will of God. That is a prime example of turning God's grace into unrestrained lust and justifying sin. That's lasciviousness. God doesn't change. You change your view, you've compromised your testimony, and you've denied the authority and power of the Word of God. You've turned the grace of God, which is available to all men, no matter how wicked a sinner they have been, available to all men as a free gift through Jesus Christ. You've taken that grace and used it to justify your sin. Paul said, if we've been saved by grace, should we continue any longer in sin? God forbid. And yet we live in a day and time when pastors behind pulpits in church denominations vote, actually hold a conference and vote to turn God's grace into lasciviousness. Amazing. But these false teachers who do this, they deny the only Lord God and they deny our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's interesting that Jude goes on to list some examples how the Lord judged people. Okay, He cast out the Israelites that believed not when they came through the desert. The angels which came down and uh, had sexual relationships with women in Genesis chapter 6 were judged and put in everlasting chains in the bottomless pit. Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown by God for going after strange flesh and set forth as an example. So the context here, again, is a long corridor of history. And when it is said that these Men deny the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word's not kurios, master. It's this word despotes. And so that word Lord seems to always be in a context of all of human history. And it connotes governance. It connotes an unchanging governance. The problem with these false teachers is they are denying that Jesus Christ 
and the Lord govern the affairs of men and that they stand supreme in their word and their will above the whims of changing times. And so we have these wicked false teachers denying the governance of God and putting themselves above God by turning His grace into lasciviousness. And it's, that's the same title used in these other passages. 2 Peter 2.1 but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Denying the Lord, denying the despotes that brought them. So we have false teachers denying the Lord as governor. The Lord as in control. It says elsewhere in Peter that there will come scoffers in the last time who make a mockery of things, the things of God, and walk after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. An outright denial of God's activity in the affairs of men and His ability to govern His creation. Is his ability to direct and control human history. So what I think we have here in this word Lord is Lord not so much in the sense of Master, but Lord in the sense of Governor. And it, and it is tied to God's governing in human history. His control of all things. His upholding of all things by the word of His power. It connotes omnipotence omniscience, active involvement through acts of history over a long period of time. That seems to be the context of every one of these passages, few though they be, where this word is used for Lord. So, considering this context, look at chapter 6. These souls below the altar are saying, How long, O Lord? In other words, Lord who is omniscient, omnipotent, actively involved throughout all of history over a long period of time. How long, O Lord, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? I think this term here is key to understanding exactly who these martyrs are. I do not believe they are just a small group of tribulation saints. This group of martyrs is the martyrs of all ages. I believe it includes Abel, down to Zechariah the prophet, Paul the apostle, Antipas, the Lord's faithful martyr, at Pergamos, all the way down to the Christians that are being killed even today in Iraq. This is the martyrs of all ages standing below the altar calling out for God's vengeance. How long, O Lord, will You not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? It says white robes were given unto every one of them, the righteousness of the saints. It was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. Isn't that the position of the church during the tribulation resting prior to God's land invasion to take back the earth? Rest for a little season until what? Their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So in other words, there are more that will be martyred. And these martyrs of all ages need to rest until those other martyrdoms are fulfilled. When we go to chapter 7, then we see exactly who those other martyrs are. They're Gentiles that come out of great tribulation as a result of the preaching of Christ's 144,000 Jewish witnesses. So this is not 
tribulation saints necessarily. It's the martyrs of all ages. I don't think we should read... It's funny how people read too in-depth into that word soul, but yet don't read enough into the word being used for Lord in verse 10. So I think this is the martyrs of all ages calling for God's vengeance. They wish to see God's vengeance carried out. Man, you maybe a lot of Christians blush at that. You mean Christians ought to wish and hope and pray and cry unto God that He would carry out His vengeance against the wicked? Absolutely. Amen. In fact, turn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. Here's something that a lot of America's pastors couldn't stomach. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What is the patience and faith of the saints? Those that lead into captivity will be captured. Those that kill with the sword will meet the same fate. That is the patience and faith of the saints. God's vengeance is real. And when God's vengeance comes, it's the patience and faith of the saints. The lake of fire, Revelation 14, 10 through 12. The same shall drink. This is those that receive the mark and worship the beast. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, verse 10, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. And He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The lake of fire is not eternal separation from God, my friends. It's in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Separation in terms of not being able to have a relationship with God, not being able to have forgiveness, not being able to have salvation, but not separation in terms of complete physical separation in which the wicked will completely be have any remembrance removed of God and be just sitting there with no God. No, it will be in the presence of God and His holy angels. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Hell is not annihilation. You don't go to hell and enter to the lake of fire and then are annihilated out of existence. It's eternal. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in His image and whosoever receiveth the mark of His name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So in other words, the lake of fire and the judgment of the wicked is the patience of the saints. Do we want people to go to hell? No. That's why we preach the gospel. But if the gospel is rejected, the judgment upon the enemies of God is the patience and faith of the saints. Look at Isaiah 66. Our doctrine of hell and the lake of fire ought to be taught by Scripture not by tradition or theology textbook necessarily. Look at the very last part of Isaiah. And it shall come to pass that from one moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before Me, saith the Lord. So these are the, this is the eternal state and the eternal kingdom. All flesh, the saved, will come and worship before the Lord. What will what, happen? They shall go forth 
And look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Not only will the holy angels and the Lamb witness the torment of the wicked in the lake of fire, but so shall the saints. In fact, this verse 24 is exactly what Jesus Christ quotes three times in Mark chapter 9 when describing hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And so hell will be an eternal reminder of the judgment of God against sin. An eternal reminder that there is a God that judges in the earth. That there is a reward to the righteous. And that all that is unjust will be and has been made right. An eternal reminder. An abhorring to all flesh. So we may need to tweak our terminology a little bit when we speak of hell and the lake of fire as eternal separation. Yes, separation from God in the sense of an inability to have fellowship with Him. But not separation in the sense of being stuck off in some far corner where you're forgotten about and where you don't even have to see God or be reminded of Him. It's not that way. This will be an eternal witness. An eternal witness. Are we wrong to desire the fulfillment of this judgment is the question. Many of David's psalms in the book of Psalms are what are called imprecatory psalms. That's where David cries out to God for his vengeance. David doesn't take vengeance into his own hands, but he cries out to God for his enemies. Look at Psalm 58. This is one of the primary imprecatory psalms. Psalm 58. We learn some important truths here. The wicked, verse 3, are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. We're born in sin. Look what David asked God to do in verse 6. A lot of people would blush at this today. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Verse 8. As a snail which melteth, let every one of them pass away like the untimely birth of a woman that they may not see the sun. In other words, let them melt just as a slug does when you put salt on it. These are David's prayers to God. Now look at verses 10 and 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. That is, the vengeance of God. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judgeth in the earth. God's vengeance teaches two things and verifies two promises to the righteous. Number one, there is a God who makes wrong that which or who makes right that which is wrong. And secondly, he judges in the earth and rewards the righteous. That's how the judgment of God is the patience and faith of the saints. Are we wrong to desire these things? I would say no. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 64 says, O Lord, would would that Thou would just rend the heavens and come down and pour out Your judgment. That was the prayer of Isaiah. I believe we should desire these things. It's the patience and faith of the saints laboring intensely to preach the Gospel with all our might, but longing for that day when all this injustice we see, all these lies we see on, on, on the news, all of this false teaching 
pouring out like poison from the pulpits of America today. All of these who mock and twist and destroy the Word of God. We should long for that day when it's made right. Right because of God's eternal and true judgment. And in view of these things, may we judge ourselves that we be not judged. Note, the saints here did not desire God's vengeance. They pray for it. David prays for God's vengeance. He desires God's vengeance. The prophet Isaiah calls for God's vengeance. That's not taking vengeance into their own hands. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is the believer is no vigilante. He preaches the gospel and he commits judgment to God and lets God have vengeance because when God has vengeance, He's glorified. If we take vengeance, we rob God of His glory and we put the focus upon ourselves. But we can desire those things that bring God glory. And the judgment of the wicked, as understood here by these martyrs, brings God's, God glory. Therefore, they desire it. God sees all. He sees the martyrdom of every one of His saints. Precious in His eyes are the death of every single martyr throughout human history. He sees these things. But He waits. White robes given to the saints here, these martyrs. That's the righteousness of Christ. They're told to rest yet for a little season. That's the role of the church during Daniel's 70th week. Why? Because more are appointed for martyrdom. And this will happen in the tribulation period. We'll see that in more detail in chapter 7. It says here that they would rest until their fellow servants would be killed as they were, till this should be fulfilled. So there was the Word of God needed to be fulfilled before He would act and avenge their death. Multiple times throughout the Scriptures, there's reference made to the Word of God being fulfilled and how, it is, how important it is for every jot and tittle to be fulfilled. God doesn't act until all is fulfilled. If we can't understand why God won't bring judgment Upon, a, upon certain situations. Maybe their iniquity has not yet reached its full. Maybe God allows them to treasure up more wrath so that when the judgment does come, it comes with ferocity and finality. But when it comes to God and His Word, every detail must be fulfilled. Therefore, God never acts early. And He certainly isn't late. Therefore, we must have patience and faith and trust God that His Word is true. Psalm 138.2 says an amazing, or communicates an amazing truth about God's Word. Something that many have forgotten these days. Verse 8, The Lord... I'm sorry, verse 2, I will worship toward Thy holy temple and praise Thy name for Thy loving kindness and for Thy truth. For Thou hast magnified Thy Word above all Thy name. God has magnified His Word even above His own name. So don't tell me God told you to do something if it goes against His Word. God's magnified His Word above all His name. Jesus said that not one jot, that's the yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, not one tittle, just a small punctuation mark, would pass from the Word of God until all be fulfilled. God has magnified His Word above His name. 
He's not magnified His name and His Word above all else. As the popular ESV says, God's magnified His Word above His name. That's a big problem. The ESV is not a Reformation Bible. You know, all these people that tout themselves as being Reformed just love the ESV. Their Bible says God's name and His Word are magnified above all else. But my Bible, preserved down through the centuries, blessed of God, says His Word is magnified above His name. That's a big difference. The King James Bible is a Reformation Bible. Just a little side note there. Anyway, these martyrs of all ages are told to wait and to rest. Because there's more that should die until the number God has in mind be fulfilled. How then is this judgment against the world as the other seals of God if God's just going to wait? If God tells, these, God tells these righteous martyrs to wait, how is that judgment against the world? Isn't the tribulation supposed to be about God pouring His wrath out upon the world? pouring His wrath out upon Israel that they might wake up? How in the world does this fifth seal even fit with the other seals? I think the answer can be found in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. And I'm almost finished. I just want to finish this seal. Romans 2, verse 5. Here, Paul is condemning the self-righteous, the moral men who preach against everybody else and yet they're doing the same things behind closed doors. Verses 4 and 5, talking to the self-righteous, Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness, God's goodness, and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? But, verse 5, after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, we have these wicked hypocrites storing up or treasuring up wrath against themselves until to be poured out at the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So in other words, the wicked store up wrath. Just as we can labor to earn heavenly rewards upon, after which we have been saved, our, our good works don't save us. They confirm the salvation that is within us. They're the natural product of a regenerated life. And they translate into rewards, heavenly rewards that we can turn around and lay at the feet of Christ as we worship Him because He is worthy to receive honor, glory, and power. In the same sense, the wicked treasure up reward. They treasure up wrath and judgment. I'm not convinced that the punishment in the lake of fire is the same for all people that end up there. The Bible talks about Jesus and talking about hell, talks about those who have no knowledge being beaten with few stripes those that have more knowledge being beaten with many stripes. It says that for certain cities in Jesus' day that heard the Word of God, it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So how can it be more tolerable for one and not the other if the lake of fire is the same exact punishment for all people? I don't necessarily believe that. I believe there's degrees of punishment in eternal damnation. And the wicked store up wrath against themselves. 
So, how is the fifth seal judgment against the world? The martyrdom of God's people and the increase in its intensity guarantees the wrath and vengeance of God. It stores up wrath against those who kill God's people. So it is judgment. God allows the wicked to think they're doing the world a favor by ridding it of the believer in Jesus Christ when in reality they're being judged by God. For the believer, it's a good thing to escape those days of tribulation. For those tribulation saints, for the martyrs, it's a precious thing in the eyes of God to leave this wicked world and be ushered into His presence. But woe unto those by whom that martyrdom is achieved. Wasn't it Jesus in talking about Judas, how it was necessary that the Scriptures be fulfilled, that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinners? It's necessary. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. It was better for him that he would never even be born. That's what Jesus said of Judas. For those that will kill God's people under this fifth seal, it's better for them they had never been born because they're treasuring up wrath against themselves. God allows more to be martyred. I call this the gleanings of the harvest in the time of tribulation. Jesus rose from the dead. There were the first fruits of the resurrection. Saints that received their resurrection bodies and were seen walking around the city. Then you had the great harvest which takes place, the salvation of souls throughout the church age and then the rapture of the church. And then every time the crops were harvested in the Old Testament, there were gleanings. Those that were left behind. And we see an example in the book of Ruth where Ruth is, Ruth is given the permission to follow behind the harvesters and pick up the gleanings and take them home to herself. So you have the great harvest of the church at the rapture. The tribulation saints are the gleanings. Those that trickle in after God pours out one last and great revival. One more chance for those that have never really heard to be saved. And these will be martyred. Salvation in that day will guarantee death. And yet people will come to Christ. It will guarantee death. And that death will guarantee the vengeance of God upon those that bring it. The martyrdom of more only more acutely guarantees God's wrath. In murdering God's saints, the wicked treasure up store up wrath unto themselves. If the death of God's saints is precious in the eyes of the Lord, how does He view those that bring about such death? I think we have a couple of interesting statements that reflect on this back in Revelation 2 when we talked about the persecuted church at Smyrna. Look what the, the church is told in verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Then in verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. This is the letter to Pergamos. Even where Satan's seat is, that thou holdest fast my name, has not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So you have a faithful martyr who was killed because of his testimony. And that's, that's discussed as a good thing in the eyes of God. So the martyrdom of the saints is good from our perspective, but terrible 
from the perspective of the world. It is the guarantee of God's judgment. I marvel at how beautiful the judgment of God is. The judgment of God is the patience and faith of the saints. It's a beautiful thing. It's not random destruction. It's a beautiful thing. And it works toward a greater purpose. That's what differentiates the God of the Bible from man-made religion. Think about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is not a product of millions of years of slow erosion. If that was the case, then the scientists would be saying that the Grand Canyon is the oldest river in the world. It's not. They say the Nile is the oldest river in the world and there's no canyons on the Nile that even remotely approach that of the Grand Canyon. It's kind of funny. But if you look at what happened, and we saw some of this at the Creation Museum, I thought it was very interesting. If you look at what happened at Mount St. Helens when it erupted in 1980, what happened as a result of that volcanic activity shed light on a lot of things. And it shows that long periods of geologic time aren't required to reshape the land. In fact, there are canyons, huge canyons around Mount St. Helens today that were formed in just a few years after volcanic eruption. Some of them were formed in a few minutes. And so you have these large canyons formed in a very small amount of time. And so they're beautiful. The outflow or the aftermath of a terrible volcanic eruption yields a very interesting and beautiful landscape today. I believe the flood is a product of the... I mean, the, the Grand Canyon is a product of the Great Flood that literally toppled the old world and rearranged everything on the planet. We tend to think of the flood as just some docile falling of rain where the waters just slowly rose up and covered everything and people died and floated around. No, there was an upheaval of the earth and it affected the climate for years to come, centuries to come after it took place. And we look, when we see the beauty of like the American West, a lot of the canyons and the rocky divides, I don't think we're looking at the original creation of God necessarily. I think we're seeing the remnants of the flood. A terrible judgment that in and of itself is a beautiful thing. So it's amazing how God's judgment is horrible for the wicked, but beautiful for the righteous. And that's what we see here in Revelation 6 with the fifth seal. The martyrdom of the saints throughout all ages. They call out for God's vengeance, but God says, wait, there are more. Wait until all is fulfilled, and then you'll have your wish. And of course, we see that wish is granted in Revelation 19 when he that is faithful and true steps out of heaven with an army in his train and takes possession of the earth that is rightfully his, Jesus the Christ. Alright, I know we got started a little later today, but I wanted to finish. I want to end with this. In the context of God's vengeance and the desire of the righteous to see God's vengeance, we must remember this important truth. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That doesn't mean keep your mouth shut and don't speak out against unrighteousness. It means live peaceably. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We can desire the vengeance of God, but remember, it's not ours to take. It's God's. 
As we desire His vengeance, let us also do what's written here in verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. What does that mean? It could mean that in heaping coals of fire, he's ashamed of his actions and come to Christ. Or it could mean that in his treatment of you, his hatred of you in response to your kindness, serves the same purpose talked about in Revelation 6. It treasures up wrath when the day of vengeance comes. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. As we desire God's vengeance, let us love our enemy enough to share the gospel with him that he might escape that vengeance. And let us never forget that vengeance is the Lord's. If we repay or try to repay, we rob God of His glory. And may that never be our desire. And of course, Paul is quoting here from Deuteronomy 32-35 in the law. Right there in the Torah, God tells the people of Israel, we think, oh, what a terrible God He was in the Old Testament and this, that, and the other. It says here in Deuteronomy 32-35, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. So in other words, God is telling Israel, it's my problem. To me belongeth uh, vengeance and recompense. Their foot, these are those that turn their back on God, or the rebellious or the wicked shall slide in due time. Does anybody know what famous sermon in American history used this passage, particularly the phrase, their foot shall slide in due time, as the key text of that sermon? It was a message about God's vengeance. Sinners in the hands of an angry God by Jonathan Edwards. He spoke from Deuteronomy 32-35 and highlighted the phrase, their foot shall slide in due time. We can rest in knowing that the enemies of God, the enemies of righteousness in this world today, their foot will slide in due time. And when God is justified in the day of vengeance, the righteous will applaud. They will applaud. Therefore, let's go forth and live as much as is possible peaceably, love our enemy and share the gospel, and commit vengeance to the Lord. Amen.